Welcome to KGOU's How Curious. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and in today's episode, how did Oklahoma's Midwest city become America's model city? And also, how did the little Shetland pony help that city to grow? People of Europe who are defending themselves do not ask us to do their fighting. It's December the 29th, 1940, and President FDR is broadcasting to the nation. They ask us for the implements of war, the planes, the tanks, the guns. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. With much of Europe at war, democracy was in a parlous state. Despite its official stance of neutrality, the U.S. couldn't remain oblivious. Former journalism professor Jim Willis is writing a history of Midwest City. There was a strong likelihood we were going to be involved in this war, so we needed to build some airplanes, and we needed to have a central place that would service and maintain those planes. Government officials started scouring the Midwest for suitable locations. They were looking for land that was no more than 10 miles from an urban area. Two-thirds of it had to be flat. There had to be water. There needed to be railroads, and there needed to be a lot of this land. Oklahoma Civic Leaders got involved in promoting Oklahoma City. The contract was awarded. The site was being kept secret, but apparently not secret enough. WP Bill Atkinson was a burgeoning Oklahoma property developer. As soon as he got wind of the depot, he wanted to be building homes for its workforce. But where? The location remained secret. However, Atkinson did know of the prerequisites and quickly determined an area to the southwest of Oklahoma City seemed promising. He was out on his own with a map. I'm in the car with Cindy Mikeman, who is Bill Atkinson's granddaughter. And he identified the railroad, he identified the flat land, he identified the skyline. There was OKC just under 10 miles away. Atkinson was around where central Midwest City stands today with 29th Street running east-west. Back then, though, this was all wheat fields, so he got out of his car and started talking with the locals. Everyone on the north side of 29th Street wanted to sell their farms. No one on the south side wanted to sell their property. And what did that mean? Did that mean that the government they, had already been in touch with them and said, yes. you're not selling except yes. to us? Yes, they had already been approached. Okay. And so that was his indication. So that's when he started purchasing all of this property. And everything to the right of us is known as the original square mile. And was it actually a square mile? It was. If you look up Tinker Air Force Base, as it's now known, on a map, the original square mile lies directly to its north. Atkinson had totally nailed the location. Construction began on the maintenance depot in July 41. When the US itself entered the war a few months later, the government also wanted a factory to build planes and decided to locate it alongside the depot. Oklahoma, which had had just about as bad a time as could be had during the Depression and the Dust Bowl years, would now be offering employment to thousands of men and women. And Bill Atkinson wanted to provide them with somewhere not only to live, but to thrive. He secured the services of premier urban planner Seward Mott. One thing Granddaddy wanted to make sure of was that we had a family-oriented community. And what do you need? You need the shopping areas, you need schools, you need churches, you need parks. The idea of creating fully planned, self-contained communities wasn't new. Just around 15 miles away and 15 years earlier, Gilbert Nichols had something similar in mind when he got started on his upscale Nichols Hills neighbourhood. But what Atkinson had in mind was a more affordable equivalent for the aspirational working classes. Matthew Pierce is Oklahoma's National Register of Historic Places Coordinator. People to say, hey, yes, come out to the suburbs, you can have an 800,000 square foot home with three bedrooms, attached garage, a front yard, a 
a school down the street. It's certainly built upon past trends, but also utilizes the emergency of the war effort to truly innovate and start to build something new. In this, the Federal Housing Administration was crucial. Established in the 1930s to help the housing industry in disarray, it ensured low-cost loans and set standards for both functional urban design and economical construction, thereby helping to usher in the minimal traditional style, i.e. modest homes based on simple standardized designs, low-cost materials and streamlined assembly. Oftentimes, architectural historians will refer to them as the little house that could, because you, you could put them up quickly, cheaply, and the style that's seen as a way to accommodate a safe and secure place to live. But these were still quality homes. My parents bought the first house in Midwest City in 42, and my brother was a year old. Ken Brusk came along two years later. Ken's father was a purchasing agent at the depot. He started working at Tinker as soon as they opened it, and he commuted from Oklahoma City until there was a house that he could buy. The speed of construction on the original mile was such that it was only a matter of months before the Bruss family had taken up residence. We were three blocks from the main gate. It was on the corner of Curtis and Turnbull. Granddaddy was not the sole builder in the original square mile. There were multiple builders that came in, and so that gave the whole idea of you're not going to see two houses the same. It's true. As Cindy and I drove around, I was surprised by the variety of structures. But that's not to say the approach was haphazard. Quite the opposite. Granddaddy was very thematic. Sometimes he would look at the color combinations on his tie to decide what colors he wanted to use on different houses. Many of the street names were also themed. Remember Ken Bruss saying that they lived on the corner of Curtis? Curtis was one of the streets given aviation industry names in alphabetical order. So Aeronica, then Boeing, then Curtis, and so on. Another area had streets named after trees or shrubs, and the houses there usually came with one of said trees or shrubs planted in the garden. During its early years, many of these roads remained unpaved due to wartime scarcities. In fact, when Midwest City was deluged with rain shortly after incorporation in 1943, it got nicknamed Mudwest City. But it would have taken a lot more than that to stem the optimism of this young community, many of whose residents quickly became invested far more than just financially in the place. Ken Brust's father, for example, stepped up to serve as Midwest City's first mayor for a couple of years. He did everything to get the city going. He volunteered with the fire department, and he went to Ohio and brought the first garbage truck back. I'm kind of amazed. You would think when they were building a city, they would think about that. I think they bought a used one from a town that had bought a new one, and they had a good deal for it. And it was amazing how the families would all work together and play together and spend a lot of time together. I know it sounds daft, but could you buy a house here if you weren't a family? Uh, I'm sure you could, but I don't know of any single individuals that moved in these homes. Now, we also had an apartment complex, so I'm sure that's where a lot of the single individuals would live. So now we're gonna drive over to the Ridgecrest edition. The original mile in Midwest City and Ridgecrest are really the products of two different contexts. Matthew Pierce again. So as we've heard, in the original mile, wartime housing was necessarily modest, but in post-war Midwest City, certain areas became swankier, helping it to earn, in 1951, the designation of America's model city from the National Association of Home Builders. But Atkinson's jewel in the crown was yet to come, and its name was Ridgecrest. 
In place of minimal traditional, it offered expansive ranch homes with luxury fittings on generous lots. Ridgecrest was designed to take advantage of the growing post-World War II affluence, even to draw some of those working class Oklahomans that moved into the original mile. Maybe they've improved their economic status to you know, truly become the middle class. And so they're really interesting juxtapositions. One of my first memories was in the summer of 53. I was four years old. Mary Clem Morris's family is a great example of this Midwest city upward mobility. When she was born, her family was living in the original mile. And we had received a letter from Bill Atkinson, and my mother had read it to me that if you bought a house in Ridgecrest, you got a pony. Well, we had bought a house that was south of Ridgecrest, but had not yet moved. So my first memory is sitting by the front door watching for my dad to come home so I could explain to him why we needed to sell the house we had not yet moved into and move to a different house so I could get a pony. I can't believe that they did it. Well, (laughs) they did. This guy was a marketing genius, Atkinson was. Jim Willis again. His family was also living in the original mile. He and his sister had heard all about the Atkinson ponies, which were included with some of these Ridgecrest homes. It was a way to essentially put pressure on dad from the kid's side. They set up a pony club. Uh, You could ride all through the developments. My sister and I almost convinced dad to do it, uh, but not quite. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I've had three horses since then. Okay, good. I I got it out of my system anyway. Even without a Ridgecrest home, Jim and other local children could still access the ponies. Yes, Atkinson used the creatures to sell homes, but he was also passionate about ponies himself and he remained dedicated to the cultivation of family-based community. So next door to his own home, which was just adjacent to Ridgecrest, he built a pony barn, and on Sunday afternoons, he and his wife Ruby opened the place up for local families to congregate, and he made sure that there were plenty of ponies saddled up and ready to ride. That is, if you dared. Shetland ponies may look cute, but that doesn't mean they always are. Joe Cole knows this better than anyone. You know, they're pretty stubborn. They bite and they kick. Joe and I met up at the pony barn. There are no ponies here now, but there used to be dozens of them when Joe started working here at the grand old age of 12. So those Ridgecrest homes that came with a pony, they didn't come with a specific one allotted. Instead, the families would come over here and pick one out, and then it was Joe's job to break it in. Were there times when a family would pick out a pony Uh and you're thinking, good luck with that one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they would try it out. If the pony wasn't right for them, there's a hundred other ponies here. I broke probably a hundred or more Chetlands to ride and everything. It took Mary a few goes before she found the right match. I think I've been told that there were four before Brownie, who was my precious horse. He was short and fat like me, (laughs) and we would share a bottle of Coke and chocolate chip cookies. Mary and Brownie were actually featured in a 1956 Life magazine article about the pony craze which had swept America. Trust Bill Atkinson to have tapped into the zeitgeist. There's a very active Midwest City History Facebook group. When I posted there looking for potential interviewees, I was blown away by the number of responses I got, full of affectionate memories, and I wish I could have included more of them. And that's how I found Mary. 
my friend Linda, that was my dear friend, we could get on our ponies and take off and be gone all day as long as we were home before dark. It was just an idyllic childhood. So idyllic, in fact, that Mary and Linda developed a fiendish plot to preserve it. Well, at least one part of it, an area of pasture that lay alongside Ridgecrest. They decided they were going to build Midwest City Regional Hospital in there. And Linda and I did not want the hospital. So we got out every evening and we pulled up the surveyor stakes. But of course, school started and we weren't allowed to go out in the evenings anymore. And they built it that next year. Oh, we devastated. Oh, I'm sorry. Many years later, Mary mentioned all of this at a Midwest City gathering. This man said that always been a question was who tried to sabotage the hospital? <laughs> and it was never considered that it was two little girls on <laughs> No, not even the best efforts of two such determined little forces of nature could impede the growth of Midwest City. It's now home to almost 60,000 residents. As for Bill Atkinson, in the 1960s, he stepped back from property development to enter politics, then founded a newspaper, the Oklahoma Journal. After his death, his home was preserved as the Atkinson Heritage Center. Much of it looks just as it did when Bill and Ruby lived there, even down to Bill's tie collection. Earlier in 2023, Midwest City opened a park named in honor of the man who's considered its founder. In it, there's a statue in tribute to Atkinson, and standing alongside him is a little Shetland pony. Thanks so much to today's contributors and to Milana Bracht and Debbie Hansen and the many members of the Midwest City History Facebook group who contacted me. How Curious is a KGOU public radio production. The editor is Logan Layden, David Gray composed our theme music, and I'm Rachel Hopkin. And if you have an Oklahoma-related idea for a future episode, please send it to us via curious at kgou.org. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.